It's 1208. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. Gru, who's producing the show today and always, would you play that clip? We have the clip from the MPS school superintendent. Now, the, the, the background in this, of course, is she got caught pulling a fast one. Um, she ended up using her authority without really telling anybody that she was going to give a bunch of raises to administrators. And the teachers are upset about it because they didn't get that much money. Uh, the school board, at least some members, are upset about it because they, they didn't know that she was doing it. Now, apparently it was hidden in some line item budget, but the rules allow her to, to do it. And she pretty much appears unrepentant that, that she did. Um, but but here here's the clip. Now she did an interview with John McCure. It's going to air on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. But here's the clip we played during the newscast. We felt we were within uh, our rights to be able to do that. Also, as superintendent, we are able to authorize uh, salary increases based on increases in responsibilities or change in job job duties at either four, eight, or ten percent. Okay, can you recue that? Play that one more time for me. You can hear this, by the way, the full interview, 420 this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. We felt we were within uh, our rights to be able to do that. Also, as superintendent, we are able to authorize uh, salary increases based on increases in responsibilities or change in job, job duties at either 4, 8, or 10 percent. Okay, you know, you know what strikes me as, as particularly odd about that? that uh, it, it has nothing to do... With the, with the issue, and I mean, here she she tried to pull a fast one, um, and, and just it kind of got caught doing that. But who ref- who talks about themselves like that? She's she's talking about herself in the third person. We are. Does she think she's the queen? We are authorized to do this. As superintendent, we do this. She. I, I I thought. Does she have a mouse in her pocket? I mean, who who is the we that this woman is talking about? It just it just strikes me as odd. And um, to, sort of this regal approach. And if you watched her body language during that, that hearing, clearly she, she doesn't like, we do not like to be questioned about our decisions by the little people that are out there. You teachers out there let you eat crumbs while we decide how much money we're going to give it. I just think it just struck me as odd that three or four times in two sentences, she's referring to herself in the third person as, as like the royal we. And it's kind of like, who, who is who is we? You mean you. You are the one that made the decision. Just one of my little pet peeves. Whenever I hear people refer to themselves in that third person, I don't know. Clearly, we have a superintendent who thinks that she is royalty and thinks that the rules don't necessarily. And that's not fair. I don't think she violated rules. She manipulated rules. And unfortunately, now they're going to have to because she did what she did. I guess they're going to have to do stuff to rein her in. We are probably not pleased. We are getting ready to move on. Who refers to themselves in the third person? We start off today's show like we start off every show, three big things. And by the way, we've got a lot of eclectic topics on today's show, and we're going to move through them, I think, pretty quickly. A number of interesting things. Some are serious. Some are are lighter. um, But all of which I, I think strike me as being interesting. Big story number one, a federal judge appointed by Bill Clinton who's been on the bench for going on 20 years, decides that he is going to get involved in rolling back Donald Trump's orders with regard to dreamers. Okay, we, we all, we have talked before about the, the, the so-called executive order issued by Barack Obama with regard to, to dreamers. Um, dreamers are people who came into this country illegally when they were children brought in by their parents 
and have been in this country since they were brought in and have not committed crimes, have gone to school, etc. But they are subject to deportation because they, they are illegally in the country. Well, what Obama said he was going to do is he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We are going to, despite the fact that the law says that they are here illegally, we are going to create a program which allows people to stay in this country. This is by executive order. I am going to say, regardless of what the law says, I'm going to issue an executive order to immigration saying don't deport any of the these people, these so-called dreamers. President Trump takes over and President Trump correctly, correctly says, look, this is we do not have kings, despite what, you know, President Obama might have thought. We are a country of laws and the immigration law passed by Congress, signed by a president, says that, you know, these people are in the country illegally. So what Trump says is, look, here's the deal. I want Congress to change the law. Work it out. Figure out what the law should be. And I'm going to give you until March to do that. After that, I am going to rescind this executive order because I don't think the president should be telling people, don't comply, don't, should be telling people don't comply with the law. The law is what the law is. And it gives Congress, like I say, to March to, to figure it out. Well, Congress can't figure it out, or at least they haven't figured it out yet. So, I mean, the way it stands now is the so-called dreamers who do not have legal status in this country are scheduled to start being deported. Now, I don't, I don't know whether it makes sense to continue the dreamer program or not. I do know that President Trump is right. He is absolutely 100% right in saying that the dreamer should be covered by a law passed by Congress as opposed to simply an executive order telling immigration to ignore the law. Right? That's not what this country is all about. And if Congress can't get its act together and everybody thinks that these dreamers should be able to stay in this country, all right, well, that's going to be pressure on Congress. So in any event, President Trump says, look, this is, I mean, I'm going to rescind this executive order. I want this to be a law, one way or the other. You guys figure it out, and I'm willing to work with you to try to work out something here. Maybe I'm going to want funding for my wall at the same time or whatever, but I'm willing to negotiate about this, but we're, we're not just going to have these lawless executive orders moving forward. And I think President Trump is absolutely 100 percent right in saying that if we're going to deal with the dreamers, we got to deal with them through Congress, if that makes sense. And I hope it does. Well, all right. So you've got some of these these groups and some of these states that have a lot of these people who are in this country illegally, who are now concerned that they're going to start deporting the people who are in the country illegally. So they run to court. And again, this a lot of this stuff comes out of California. You have a liberal federal judge out of California who issues a ruling yesterday um, blocking the Trump administration's decision to end the program protecting young immigrants from deportation. Again, the, the judge essentially says, well, I, I think if you start deporting these people, it's going to cause them a hardship because they're, they're going to be gone from the country. And I think they have a substantial chance of winning. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is big story number one. Where do we find the, these federal judges 
who want to set themselves up to, to be kings. Are we not a country of laws? I mean, do we really want a situation where you can have a president of the United States, whether it's Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Bill Clinton or whoever, who simply can give orders saying we're going to follow some laws, we're not going to follow others, and then federal judges who say, hey, I've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, but you know what? I'm not going to follow the laws either. I think this is a horrible decision. And again, it is representative, I think, of what is going on today in the court system where you have some judges that decide to view themselves not as people who should interpret the law, but rather people who, well, are kings who get to decide what they think should be right. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If Congress does not act, I think President Trump is absolutely right in saying, hey, the, the Dreamers... We're, all right, we, you do not have legal protection anymore. 414-799-1620. Now, if Congress wants to act, that's a complete and totally different story. But I think this judge is way, way, way out of bounds. And, again, you're starting to see this with regard to almost any initiative that the Trump administration takes. 414-799-1620. I think the judge is wrong and tragically wrong as well. We discuss next. It's 1218. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. See, this is why you do not want liberal activist judges who decide that they know what a result should be. So it doesn't matter what the law says. They will simply rule in order to get what the result is. Now, I, I, I will let smarter people than me figure out what you should do with the, the so-called dreamers. But, but that's it is a congressional thing. President Trump said a number of months ago, hey, this is an executive order. I don't think the president has the power, and we're, by the way, we're getting sued and we're going to probably lose these lawsuits, to say, hey, you can't enforce the law. If you don't like the law, change the law. Well, here you have this federal judge yesterday appointed by Bill Clinton in 1999 um, saying, well, I, I just I'm going to stop the Trump administration from rolling back a presidential order. How in the world if the if the policy was put in place by a presidential order, how in the world can it not be rolled back by a presidential order? This is this is pretty simple. This is a federal judge that is way out there in la la land, and he's dead wrong. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's see um, our text line. We need to have a law. If judges overruled three times, they are removed from the bench. Hmm. Follow the law to indeed um, the executive order on immigration by Trump. Yeah, that's. What you have to do is, again, just follow the law. Yet another example of judicial overreach that will eventually be reversed, and it reinforces Trump's contention that liberal judges are overstepping their authority. Yes, and we, of course, saw that in Wisconsin. Remember, after Scott Walker came out with Act 10, you had a number of lawsuits all filed in Dane County, where you've got, what, there's seven or eight Dane County judges, all way to the left of certainly the state Supreme Court, but also way to the left of the rest of the state who, I think, interjecting politics into the matter, did everything they could to stop Act 10. Ultimately, they all got reversed. Paul and Jackson. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, this is a prime example why we're lucky that uh, Trump was the one that got elected, because he gets to fight a lot of federal judges out there, and they're not going to be so far to the left of what Obama wanted. 
because the Republican Party, when they were in power, are still are in power out there, they wouldn't pass a lot of the liberal judges that want right. to make their rulings from the bench. And by doing this type of a ruling, he also is having Congress sit on their hands because yep. if they can get a judge to do this, they don't have to make that hard decision on what they're going to do with the DACA. Yeah, you know, that's you, thanks for calling. You raise a fascinating point. One of the reasons that President Trump said what he said a few months ago was the whole idea that he wanted to pressure Congress to try to get off its stuff and, and do and again, like like I say, I, I think immigration is a matter that should be handled by Congress. Figure out what the law should be. If we Republicans, Democrats, Independents, whatever, decide that it's not in the interest of the country to try to deport, you know, eight hundred plus thousand people who were brought in as children. Um, are in this country illegally, but have gone to school here, have ties to this country, or otherwise paying taxes. I understand that, and I think you can candidly make a case for that. I, I really do. But that's the case that needs to be made for in front of Congress. And, Paul, you are exactly right. One of the reasons President Trump did what he did was he said, look, I – I am willing to open this up. I'm willing to discuss this. You know, maybe we tie in, you know, something to do with uh, the Dreamers. We tie it in with, you know, future funding for, you know, immigration. You know, Democrats, you give a little bit. Republicans, you give a little bit. Maybe we can get some sort of consensus. By having this federal judge rule in this particular way, it lets Congress off the hook because Congress can say, okay, we don't have to negotiate. We don't have to change the law because we've got some lefty federal judge who's sitting on the bench who has now decided. And if you just think about it, if the policy was put in place by an executive order from the president, how can a president not roll back the executive order? I mean, if you just think about it like that, it demonstrates how nonsensical this type of thing is. But this is what passes for at least some branches of the federal judiciary now. It's 1224. Big story number two is coming up. NBC has the Super Bowl. We all know that the NFL has been just embroiled this year in controversy over protests about the Super Bowl. NBC is announcing how they're going to handle protests. I will tell you about it, and we will discuss in just a minute. It's 1225. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you join us. Driving to the Windy City, do you have your iPass? What are the new regulations in place that could affect you and your commute? Gene Miller has the details at 521 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. All right, big story number two. Um, NBC will be carrying the Super Bowl this year. So one of the big questions is, all right, we don't know who's going to be in the Super Bowl. But what if you have a number of players in the Super Bowl who decide that they are going to stage some of they're going to pull a Colin Kaepernick and they're going to stage, you know, a protest of some sort or the other kneeling, things like that. What Pink is serving is going to be singing the national anthem, I guess, at the Super Bowl. So that's one of the questions to NBC. All right. How are you going to deal with this? Obviously, this has been very, very controversial. Now, NBC can decide. Well, they can decide there's a lot of ways that they could go on this, including simply ignoring it. You know, um, all right, you know, we're going to keep our cameras on on the singer, for example. I mean, I was I was at the Bradley Center last night for the Marquette Seton Hall game. And, you know, they had some people who were singing the national anthem. It was up on the Jumbotron. They just focused the camera 
on the singers. They weren't going through the crowd, you know, trying to pick out people who might have been standing or not singing or whatever. I mean, they just focused on the singers. So the question becomes, all right, how is NBC going to handle this? Well, they announced yesterday that they've made the decision. They will show any players who kneel during the pregame national anthem. That's the executive producer, producer said. Uh, they said the anthem is typically shown live at the Super Bowl. It's going to be performed. If any players decide to kneel at the Super Bowl, NBC will cover it, says the executive uh, producer. He says um, um, when you are covering a live event, you are covering what's happening. If there are players who choose to kneel, they will be shown live. Announcers likely will identify the players, explain the reasons behind their actions. Hmm. That's interesting because half the players don't know the reasons why they're kneeling. And then get on with the game. Um, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. NBC could handle this a number of ways. Like I say, NBC could simply say we're not going to focus on the protests. We are going to keep the cameras trained on the singer. We're going to show people in the stands. We're going to show images of the flag. We're going to show, I don't know, military people. But NBC is specific, specifically saying, you know, if the players protest, we will give them their 15 minutes of fame. Is NBC making the right decision? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer would be no, but we will discuss. 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, during the break, somebody was saying, well, Jeff, if people decide to kneel during the Super Bowl, I mean, isn't that news? Doesn't NBC have an obligation to cover that? To which I said, well, no, they don't have an obligation to cover it. I mean, networks make decisions all the time. For example, as a general rule, most networks and most local broadcasts, they will not show. If somebody runs onto the field during a sporting event, they will not show them. And the reason they it, you could argue, hey, it's news. The game has been stopped. Somebody's run on the field. But they make the decision, we don't want to encourage people to do that. We don't want to give them their 15 minutes of, of fame. So we decide not to. So there is this degree of discretion that goes in. If you're just tuning in, NBC announced yesterday that they're covering the Super Bowl. And if any of the players on the teams decide to kneel in protest, yes, they will focus on it. And, yes, they will apparently also have the announcers This is what I like. Identify the players and explain the reasons behind their actions. Well, okay, which is interesting because when we've had this go on before, the players don't know. I mean, everybody's got different. Some people are protesting the the shooting of, you know, unarmed black people or the shooting of armed black people. Other people are protesting aid to Puerto Rico. I mean, at some point in time, don't we just say enough is enough? And I think this decision, again, like other decisions that have been made during the course of the years, is going to hurt the NFL. I think it could hurt NBC, too. Kathy in Pewaukee. Kathy? here on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So my feeling, um, basically, as I was mentioning to your caller screener, is that for the last 19 or 20 years, I've had a Super Bowl party, and we've all obviously been watching it on about four screens. Right. Um, I don't plan on having a party. That's more because I'm just fed up with the entire season. But I will definitely not be watching it because I have a real gripe with NBC, 
and basically, if anything, encouraging players to take a kneel for the for the attention. Well, I, right, I mean, actually, by saying this is their policy well in advance of the Super Bowl, I think they really have green lit it, and I think that they're kind of now. Um, it tacitly put some pressure on some of these players because now the players know that, hey, if they kneel, they are going to get the atten- attention, number one, and number two, they're going to get this sympathetic explanation from the announcers, you know, who are going to, what, Al Michaels is going to say what the prote- people are protesting about? Give me a break. Well, I, I totally agree with you, and I think that it's it's time that it should backfire on, on the um, stations, but uh, unfortunately it doesn't seem to have as huge an impact as I would hope. No, well, I mean, thanks. I mean, again, it's, it's – I mean, look, people are going to watch the Super Bowl. I, I, I get it, but I, I think this, again, demonstrates – it, it demonstrates how poorly the NFL has, has handled this entire situation. And, of course, uh, because if the NFL, let's face it, if the NFL didn't want these players getting this kind of attention, they could have told NBC, you know, we, we don't want this covered in this fashion. And I do think it's something that the NFL is going to have to get a handle on next year. Now, the truth is that the, these protests have started waning. And of the, somebody sent me a note saying of the teams that are left in the playoffs, none of them have kneelers. Um, none, and I, I don't know if that's the case off the top of my head or not. But um, I, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be an issue. But the guy who's producing it for NBC has certainly made it an issue by deciding to mouth off about it. Tony on the northwest side. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Jeff, no, they should. First of all, they shouldn't show the players at all. And number two, on Thanksgiving. They cut out to a military ship. Everybody had attention. Yep. Play the national anthem. That was the best national anthem I've ever seen. Yeah, they have the discretion as to what they, they could do. right? NBC could simply say, hey, we're not going to show the players. We're not going to show the sidelines. We're going to focus on the pink who's singing the show. And then, right, we're, 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 going, to, we're going to Kuwait. We're going to Afghanistan. We're Because, you know, they, they have those things set up. And we're going to show all the soldiers who are watching this at the base in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, and wouldn't that be great? Instead That's of what it's all about, Jeff, and it's not about these players. It's getting sickening with the players. Now, th- thanks for that. Now, you know, you want to talk about a way that you know the whole story gets spun differently. Imagine if NBC and the producer would have come out and said, "You know what? You know, we're we're not going to allow our game to be hijacked. We're we're here to promote the game, and we're not going to allow it to be hijacked by a handful of players." And look, I don't know if any of the players are going to do this or not, but I mean, now they've certainly been green-lighted by NBC. But if NBC would have taken another approach and said, "You know, here here's exactly that we're going to we're going to show the singer, we're going to show Pink singing the song. Now, obviously, if she does something, well, okay, she does something, but we're going to show her singing the song. Um and then, you know, we're going to focus on we've got our cameras in Afghanistan. We're going to be at this military base. We're going to show how the the real patriots, you know, the people who are serving this country, we're going to show how they respond. You know, NBC would be applauded instead of well, no. If if people kneel, we're going to give we're going to give weight to the protest, and then we're going to have our announcers explain what the protests are about. Like I say, I like I, who's doing the game. Is it Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth? I don't know, but yeah, okay. Al Michaels is going to be giving social commentary. Give me a break. It is twelve forty one. Coming up, big story number three. What were they thinking in Wauwatosa? Stick around. Um, it's twelve forty two. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
1244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Bucks look to get back in the win column this evening at the BMO Harris Bradley Center against the Orlando Magic. Ted Davis and Denny Krau- Dennis Krause are live with Buckshot's coverage. It starts at 640 here on WTMJ. Be sure to check that out. All right, big story number three. number of the TV stations had this report. I, I happen to get it off of uh, Channel 6. Here's the way they report it. A homework assignment asked fourth graders at a private school in Wauwatosa to argue why slavery was a good thing. Uh, The assignment handed out Monday, January 8th, quickly uh, sparked a backlash. It asked English students to give three good reasons for slavery and three bad reasons for slavery. One of the parents said, it's highly offensive and sensitive. I was in shock. I couldn't believe that they sent something like that home. Um, she happens to have a, a nine-year-old son who's a student in the class. Um, she said, not only was my son in an awful position, but the students who weren't black, that's what keeps the racism going. Uh, the principal declined to speak with Fox 6 News on camera, but admitted yesterday the assignment was out of line. He said uh, the purpose of the assignment was not in any way to have students argue that slavery was acceptable. Huh. Okay, well, the assignment was that uh, they should give three good reasons for slavery and three bad reasons for slavery. And this is in a fourth grade class. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Sometimes I think we overreact to stuff. The, the idea that, for example, we need to censor books. And, and you see this going on. The fact that, okay, can we, can we teach, you know, can we, can we put Mark Twain in, you know, on reading lists because some of the, the books that he wrote, you know, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, were products of the time, and they have bad words in them, or words that are unacceptable by 2018 standards. And you have these efforts to try to, again, sanitize history and, and censor things that, that I fight, all right? At the same time, though, you have stories like this. Who in their right mind would have thought that it was a good idea to give an assignment to fourth graders arguing, you know, pros and cons of, of slavery. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in an appropriate setting, in an appropriate way, you could not, I don't know, teach about slavery. For example, you know, if you were in a high school class analyzing the causes of the Civil War. I could certainly see an assignment saying, all right, discuss and uh, discuss the, the reasons the South had for trying to justify slavery. I mean, okay, that's, that's a, an historical sort of perspective, but that's not what they did here. 414-799-1620. And again, they, I'll give the school credit because – once parents started complaining, they acknowledged right away that this was a mistake. But my point is, who would have thought that this was appropriate in the first place? Lisa in Oak Creek. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Lisa. I was, I was agreeing with what you were saying before as far as I, I saw this on the news, and I thought, you know, we are very sensitive, and I, the teacher totally was wrong. I don't know who looks at papers before they hand them out to the class anyways, 
but I, I do have to feel for the teacher also because of social media that this went viral, and now this teacher is getting a backlash or, or what you want to call it um, of what he did. I think mistakes are made sometimes. I don't, you know. Uh, yeah, but you, well, I guess the, the overall premise, though, is you would agree with me that this was a mistake. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I guess you I. Know, and, and, yeah. And with the, with what's going on, there's so many mistakes. I you, you see them on about you know people saying about the women and what's going on with the with everything. There's there are people make mistakes in what they say. Is, mm-hmm. is CBS making the mistake though? <laughs> you know. Well, right. I mean, again, th- thanks. And again, I see, and I'm not, and I want to be real clear here, Lisa. I, I am not one of these revisionist guys. I, I am not arguing that in the appropriate context, you, you shouldn't be discussing the issue of, of slavery. Cause I, I, now, I don't know how you necessarily, I'm fourth grade might be a little bit young to try to get into that. But like I say, seriously, I mean, I could see as an assignment, all right, you know, or a test question or, you know, one of the essay questions was, all right, explain, you know, what the economic justification the South offered for slavery prior to the Civil War. Explain, you know, the economic impact of slavery on the, you know, the growth of agriculture in the South, you know, in, in 1825. Okay, I, I mean, there's, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to teach about slavery. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to talk about slavery. I'm not saying that you, you can't analyze it um, from an educational perspective, because I, I think you can't. You can't sanitize history. You have to talk about that stuff. But to throw out an assignment to fourth graders saying, give us three good reasons for slavery and three bad reasons for slavery, I, I think is simplistic at at best. Now, and again, the, the, the school, to their credit, I mean, sent out a letter right away on behalf of the school. We sincerely apologize for the fact that an assignment given to a fourth grade class yesterday was not clearly explained to students and their parents. The result was a strong call to action to address the situation. We understand that as presented, the words used shows the, showed a lack of sensitivity and were offensive. I would also add it was just dumb. The purpose of the assignment was not in any way to have students argue that any slavery is acceptable, a concept that goes against our core values and beliefs about equality of people of all ages and races, etc., etc. In any event, hopefully this ends up being a teaching moment, but they were fourth graders. All right, coming up next, he took the money, she didn't. Should he be ashamed? Stick around. It's 1250. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ Grew, who's producing the show. You chose the wrong occupation because um, you know who Mark Wahlberg is? Mark Wahlberg, the actor, um, last year he was the highest paid movie star. Mark Wahlberg, they estimate he made um, $68 million last year for his various movies. If you're not familiar with Mark Wahlberg, he's been a lot of movies over the years. Um I, uh, Boogie Nights was probably one of his big ones. He was in A uh, Perfect Storm, um, Basketball Diaries. He was in the Planet of the Apes, some of the Planet of the Apes movies, Ocean's Eleven, um, you know, a number of those type of movies. Invincible, um, he played in that. Um, he was the executive producer of the HBO show Entourage. You know, he's been in a lot of, he's been in a lot of movies and he's made a lot of, of money. He was one of the guys who was one of the stars of this movie, All the Money in the World. I have not seen this movie. It came out a couple weeks ago. All the Money in the World is a movie. It's an historical 
drama. It's based on uh, around the fact that billionaire J. Paul Getty, his grandson was kidnapped and um, he essentially refused to pay the money. He, he took the position that if I do this, it's just going to open the door for more kidnapping. So he refused to pay the money. And, and that's an historical fact. And ultimately, they ended up paying some money to the kidnappers and the son was recovered. But this is a movie about that. The movie has gotten a lot of attention because the, the billionaire character, the J. Paul Getty character, was originally played by Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey of the, here, let's molest other actors. Once the Kevin Spacey story came out, after the Harvey Weinstein story came out, Kevin Spacey, of course, the actor who's been in all sorts of stuff, most notably House of Cards, the, the movie producers made the decision we're not going to delay the release of the movie. The movie was supposed to be released by the end of the year for Oscar consideration and for Christmas release. What we're going to do, though, is we are going to reshoot all the scenes that we have shot with Kevin Spacey, and we're going to hire another actor. Uh, the actor was Christopher Plummer from The Sound of Music. So we're going to hire Christopher Plummer to replace Kevin Spacey. But what we're going to do is over like a two-week period of time, and this is almost unprecedented, we're going to... We're going to reassemble the cast. We're going to reassemble the crew, and we're going to reshoot all the scenes that Kevin Spacey was in. All right, and and we're not going to delay it. And we're going to we're going to work night and day, and we're going to get this done. All right, and this is it was really sort of an unprecedented thing. It got all sorts of attention. Well, they had to reassemble the, the crew and and the actors. Mark Wahlberg was one of the people who was in several of the scenes. Um, one of the other people was the actress Michelle Williams. She played um, she played the the mother of the the child that got kidnapped. So I mean, she was the daughter in law. So um, Michelle Williams, and again, I haven't seen the movie. I'm told her performance is absolutely outstanding. The movie is not doing well. It's very it's underperforming. But I, I still kind of want to see it. So anyhow, they've got to assemble the cast and crew. Um, they call up Michelle Williams, the actress. And they say, okay, we'd, we'd like you to, to come and, and do this, you know, drop everything. And she says, okay, I, I'll be there. What, what do you need? I will be there. And she agrees to do this for no more money. You know, she's already been paid for doing the movie. So she comes in and apparently likes works two weeks and she gets a per diem of like 80 bucks a day or something like that. She ends up getting about a thousand dollars for coming in and for for doing this. Um, and she says, yeah, well, when they called me, she says, I really love this movie, and I want it to happen. And she said when they called me and said, could he come in and he could work a couple extra weeks on the reshoot, she said, I'll be wherever you need when you need me, whenever. Um, don't worry about paying me. You know, I'm coming in. I really believe in this project. Fine. That's what she says. They call Mark Wahlberg, and they ask Wahlberg to do the same thing. And apparently what Wahlberg says is, I'm not going anywhere unless you pay me. And he and his agents negotiate a fee of $1.5 million to come in and do the reshoot. They say, yeah, if, if you want us there, we'll drop everything, but you got to pay us $1.5 million. Now, the producers and the director, they don't tell anybody about this. Matter of fact, um, when the Ridley Scott, who's the director, is doing his press for this, you know, he says, hey, I didn't get paid. 
None of the actors got paid. They all came in. They did it for free. The, the new guy that we hired, Christopher Plummer, he got paid, but Michelle, no, she didn't get paid. But they don't disclose that Mark Wahlberg demanded $1.5 million to come in. Well, now the story is coming out that he would not do this unless he got $1.5 million, and there's all this outrage that's being directed at the producers. Hey, here's the pay inequity. Michelle Williams, you give her 1000 bucks, and this guy gets $1.5 million. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want you to think about this for a couple minutes, and then we're going to talk about it right after the top of the hour news. All right, Wahlberg says, you want me, and apparently he was under no contractual obligation to do these resuits, you want me, you know, you got to pay me $1.5 million, and the producers say yes. The actress, Michelle Williams, says, all right, I'll be there whenever you want here. Just, just tell me I will show up. Is it fair to criticize the producers? Is it fair to criticize anybody in connection with this? Is this an example of pay inequality, or is there something else going on? What do you think? We'll discuss in a couple minutes. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 12.59. This is Jeff Wagner. 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Okay. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's open up the phone lines on this. There's this big deal um, across the country as part of the whole Me Too movement. Um, related to that is the whole idea of, of pay inequality. Women being paid less than men for similar types of, of jobs, the glass ceiling, all those types of things. And and Hollywood gets accused of that quite a bit. So here's the story. You, you have the, this movie that they were making, All the Money in the World, which is about the kidnapping of J. Paul Getty's grandson. Okay, It's based on a, on a true story. It stars Michelle Williams, really, really great actress, who plays the mother of the child that gets that gets kidnapped, the um, daughter-in-law of J. Paul Getty. Okay, I haven't seen the movie. I'm, I'm told it's pretty good, although it's not doing very well at the box office. Kevin Spacey played the grandfather, played J. Paul Getty. Um, obviously, once all the stuff breaks with Kevin Spacey, we, we've got to erase him from the national consequence from the national mindset. So what the producers say is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reshoot this movie. And the movie is ready to be released in the mid-December. What we're going to do is we're going to gather the cast together. We're going to recast the Kevin Spacey role. And he's on a lot of the movie. We're going to hire Christopher Plummer. And we're going to reshoot all these scenes. And we're not going to delay the production, et cetera, et cetera. So they get everybody together. They get the crew back. They get the actors back. The director, Ridley Scott, says, hey, I didn't take any money uh, for this reshoot. Um, Michelle Williams the, the mom, you know, she says, hey, they called me. They asked me to do it. I believe in this project. I came back, didn't get a dime. What nobody knew is that um, Mark Wahlberg, the you know actor who's in this movie as well, he apparently said, hey, I'm not doing this unless you pay me. And he demanded one and a half million dollars. Um, and so they didn't tell anybody about this, but they paid him one and a half million. So now this whole story is kind of blown up as one of pay inequality. The argument is, hey, you got Michelle Williams. She worked for per diem. She got like a thousand bucks for working for two weeks. Mark Wahlberg demanded and got one point five million. This is appalling. All right, is this really a story of pay inequality, or is there something else going on here? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Kelly in West Bend. Kelly, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. My my first thought was that Michelle Williams should probably fire her agent for not negotiating a deal for her. Uh, You 
you can't get something if you don't ask for it. And, you know, Mark Wahlberg asked for it. He got it. She didn't. And so, you know, that's kind of her, her issue. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that that's sort of how I look at it, too. Now, I think if I were Michelle Williams, I would probably be upset with the producers for not telling me, you know, because they, they certainly made it clear in the interviews that they were giving to the public that everybody was doing this for free. So they didn't go in and they didn't tell her that. But at the same time, I'm kind of with you. I mean, she they called her up. They asked her. She said, hey, I will do this for free. I believe in the project. I don't know that they have an obligation to say, well, okay, here, we're going to give you $1.5 million. I, I To me, you're, I think it's right. This, this isn't pay inequality. This is she agreed to do it. The other guy didn't doing, agree to do it without money. I don't know that it's, it's, the, I don't know that it's anybody's fault. She just, that's the deal that she struck. Right. If she's going to be upset with anybody, she should feel foolish that she didn't make the decision to try to to try to get the money. Right. Or if people, and actually, I'm not sure she's upset. I think there's a lot of people in Hollywood that are upset on her behalf. But she agreed. I mean, she agreed to do it. It's kind of like, yeah, I I don't know for for any of us. If if your boss says, um, you know, hey Kelly, um, I I, I need you to. We have to make some revisions of this project, and I know you work per hour, but we're kind of at the end of our budget. Will you come in and work for free on a weekend, and you agree that you're going to do it? Well, I I, I don't know. Is, is that the boss's fault? No, you've agreed to do it instead of saying, no, I need money to come in. I, I don't know that that's the fault of the company. Yep, yeah. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the call. Now, again, it's – and, I mean, they all make a lot of money, and maybe this does – not reflect in the best light with Mark Wahlberg, but at the same time, I, I I don't know. They're asking him to, they're asking him to take a couple weeks over Thanksgiving and to come in, and they're asking him to work, and he obviously feels he has the leverage to do it, and so he, he demands the money. I don't necessarily fault him either. I mean, if he if he didn't have an obligation to do it, I think he has every right to say, hey, I I want to get paid for my time, doesn't he? Alex and Racine, Alex, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Alex. Yes. Hi, Alex. Uh, you pretty much said everything I had to say. Uh, Mark Wahlberg knows what his time's worth. I mean, he's obviously a huge game. He's a big deal. And I don't think it has anything to do with gender. Uh, I don't know. I, right. And I don't, you can't blame, the, I guess, what you say, the bosses or whatever, because everybody will ask everybody to do something. If maybe somebody says, no, I'm not doing it, I want more. They don't go around and tell everybody else. They care. It's everybody else. You know what I mean? Oh right, no, I, yeah, no. You're now. Yeah. I the only. I guess the only. The only reason. No, thanks for calling. The, the only reason I, I say that because, yeah. You, I mean, you, you're right. I mean, I'm trying to think. Okay, let, let's say you're talking about radio personalities who get paid to do endorsements. Okay, I, I don't know that you necessarily would go around and say, okay, we offered so and so x amount of dollars to do an endorsement. Um, and they said yes or no, so we're, we're, we're going to offer you the same amount of money. I don't think you necessarily have to do that. Where I think the producers might have gotten in trouble is they certainly created the impression, at least Ridley Scott, the director, did, when he's doing interviews, and he was saying everybody did it for free. Uh, everybody didn't do it for free. Walmart, uh, Wahlberg demanded $1.5 million. So there's this effort of, the, of deception there. I don't know if Michelle Williams had said, well, you know, are you paying anybody else? I don't get that idea. But again, to me, this is, this is not pay inequality. Pay inequality would be if she demanded money for coming back as well and they offered her half as much 
as they offered Wahlberg. Okay, so that that would be pay inequality to an extent. Maybe it's Wahlberg's a bigger star and they think they need him more for the success of the movie. I don't know about that, but that would be pay inequality. This is simply she didn't ask for it and they didn't offer it to her. Tony in Milwaukee. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, I think the last couple uh, callers basically summed it up pretty well for what I was going to say, but um, I I don't think it was a paying inequality in, in for somebody to insinuate that, I think, is really wrong uh, when there are legitimate cases of that happening. But this is just not one of them. You know, it, it was a matter of he asked for it and he got it. And, and she didn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tough, tough for her. Sorry. But that's just the way the world works. Yeah, she right. Right. She right. She didn't she didn't ask for it. And. Um, and, and, you know, maybe she was more committed to the project. Maybe she she really wanted to see this movie get out. Maybe she felt that, hey, this is I've got an Oscar. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go on, including maybe, hey, look, I, I could win an Oscar for my performance in this. Um, I want to make sure that this movie gets released and I want to make sure it gets released, you know, so it's eligible for Oscar consideration. And this is going to be something that's it's, it's going to be a, a role that I point back to and it's going to help me get all sorts of other roles. I mean, there could have been all sorts of reasons why she made this decision, but she didn't ask for the money, and I think she's admitting that she didn't ask for the money. Um, Dick in Heartland. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Dick. I was, I was listening to the morning show on your station this morning, and, there was, and they said that they both had the same agent. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't that be the agent's fault then for not asking or not telling, what's her name, Michelle, that what's his name's getting more money? Um, well, I, I, I would, I would be, I would be upset with my agent for not telling me that they were paying other people. Yeah. But that's who I would be mad with. If I were, if I were the actor here or the actress in question, I'd be saying, wait a second. And again, I don't know what the confidentiality is between different, you know, whether it's like lawyer client or whatever, or how much freedom they have to share information. But yes, if, if I shared an agent with somebody and I found that he was getting 1.5 million and I didn't know about it and I was doing it for free, I would be hacked off. <laughs> There's no question about it. That's right. Yeah, uh, right. No, thanks for calling. I mean, I, I would be hacked off. But regardless of, of how you look at it, this is being spun as this huge pay inequality type of thing, and I, I, I don't see it like that. Now, I don't know how much she made for the movie versus how much he made for it, and, and maybe you could argue, well, she's got a bigger role. She should have gotten as much as he got, if not more, and, and I don't know how that all worked out. But for this particular aspect of the story, just the reshoot – I don't think there's an issue. All right. Speaking of money, if you if you are a resident in Kenosha, all right, you're out twenty five thousand dollars because of the school board and your insurance premiums are going to go through the roof. I will tell you about that in just a minute. At least the insurance premiums for the Kenosha Unified School District are set to go through the roof. I'll explain to you what happened and we'll discuss in a minute. It's one nineteen. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One twenty-one. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There's a new general manager in Title Town. You know the name, pronunciation at all. But now get to know the man behind the title. That's at three fifty on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, here's the story from Kenosha. The Kenosha News has a big story about this. Um, the person has has graduated, um, but the lawsuit lingers on. 
Um, the case involves a former Tremper High School student who graduated last June named Ash Whitaker. Whitaker was born female, but identifies as a male. Okay, so it's one of these deals, um, male body parts, from what I understand. Um, Kenosha, the Kenosha Unified School Board, implemented a, a policy where, again, he would have to use the male, he would have to use the, the female restroom. And they then monitored trips to the boys' restroom. He ended up filing a, a lawsuit, went to a local district court, it went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The Seventh Circuit held that um, Kenosha had to allow Whitaker to use the male-only restrooms at Tremper, even though he physiologically it was he was a female. Um, while he was attending the school, the injunction allowed him to use the boys' restrooms throughout his senior year. All right, Seventh Circuit upheld that. They're the first court in the country appellate court in the country to say that a policy that requires an individual to use a bathroom that does not conform with his or her gender identity as opposed to actual physical gender violates Title IX and that subjecting transgender students to different rules, sanctions, and treatments than non-gender students violates federal law. Because that's what the Seventh Circuit said. Um, Kenosha was getting ready to appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has not really issued rulings on this, and ultimately one of these cases is going to get there. This case won't because it has been settled by the school district. The school district's insurance company is paying $800,000. $800,000 to the student and his attorneys. The way the story in the Kenosha News reads, $650,000 of the settlement of the 800000 goes to attorney fees. 650000 goes to the lawyers. Um, the remaining money goes to the, the student. So he gets one hundred and fifty, six hundred fifty grand goes to the attorneys. Okay, um, this way this is going to be paid out is it's the insurance. This is covered by insurance, so the insurance carrier pays $800,000. The only thing, at least at this point, that the Kenosha School District has to pay is the $25,000 deductible. So the vast amount of this money, again, it's going to come from the insurance company, but if you don't think the insurance company is going to turn around and increase the rates based on a lawsuit like this, I I think, again, you need to be careful to duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck so you don't hurt yourself. All right, the school district is not happy about this settlement because they haven't agreed to change their policy. Um, But the insurance company essentially forced this settlement by saying, look, we're we're already on the hook for $800,000. The guy's lawyers were claiming that the fees were already $1.7 million. So if we estimated if we went up to the Supreme Court or back down to the trial court to try this case, you know, we could be looking at fees between 4 and $5 million if we ended up losing. So this was a chance to essentially get out cheap by paying $800,000. 
So what the lawyers in Kenosha are saying is, yeah, we, we actually think we have a pretty good case, but we can't afford to continue to carry on the, the, this, this fight, this litigation. So we're going to resolve this particular case, but we're not going to change our policy. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Believe me, I understand the economic you know, things that, that drive settlements. And it's almost mind-blowing to me that a case like this could end up with, you know, legal fees claiming to be $1.7 million and settled at $650,000. I think that that's kind of staggering. But having said that, having said that, I guess the question becomes, should Kenosha have continued the fight if they believe that they are right? And my answer is, yeah, they should have. They shouldn't have given in because here's the problem. This this is there is not a change in policy. Next time a transgender student comes along and raises the same issue, they're going to be right back there at square one. Settling this case without resolving the issue or changing the policy is, I think, silly. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I, I understand for a lot of you, you might be hearing some of these numbers I'm throwing around and going, the, the lawyer said their fees were $1.7 million and they're, they're settling for 650 and the lawyers get 650 and the aggrieved student gets 150,000. It, it does kind of indicate how the legal system can, can in some respects go off the rails. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The real reason I bring up this this story is, I guess, really two reasons. First of all, I, I hope soon the Supreme Court comes down and, and takes a case and decides what the obligations are that school districts have to with regard to the, these transgender students, because this issue is not going away. In my opinion, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit it is wrong dead wrong when they say that, you know, Title IX requires, requires, you know, as a matter of law, requires individuals to use bathroom. Schools cannot require individuals to use bathrooms that conform with their physical makeup as opposed to their so-called gender identity. I, I mean, I just... I just don't think federal law goes that far. And I think, with all due respect, the Seventh Circuit is dead wrong on that. I would have liked to have seen this case out of Kenosha go to the Supreme Court so that you could get a resolution of it. If you're just tuning in, um, Kenosha, earlier this week, settled the case. $800,000. Of the $800,000, $650,000 goes to the lawyer for the now graduated the lawyers for the now graduated student 150,000 go to the the student who was born female um, but identifies as a male and wanted to use the the male bathrooms the student is now graduated the school district says hey we sat down with the insurance company the insurance company said that the the lawyers for the student claim that their attorney's fees are already 1.7 million dollars and if we pursue this to the supreme court and we lose 
or we win in the Supreme Court, it comes back and it goes to trial, we could be looking at legal fees of somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to $5 million. At some point in time, I don't know what the, the limit on the insurance company's payments would be, but essentially the school district says we couldn't afford to continue this litigation. The way this works right now is of that $800,000, Almost all of it except the $25,000 deductible is paid by the insurance company. Although if I'm the insurance company, my guess is next time those, next time Kenosha goes to negotiate premiums, you know, there's going to be an increase. So, I mean, number one is I wish this case would have gone up because I'd like the Supreme Court to decide it. But number two, this is one of these cases that cries out for limits on attorney's fees in situations like this. The reality is the economics of this, and I understand why the insurance company wanted to do what it did. I understand why the school district wanted to do what it did, because they're sitting there saying, okay, we don't want the taxpayers to be on the hooks for, you know, potentially millions of dollars. But what that does is it allows it allows plaintiffs' lawyers to hold school districts hostage. Now, I understand they've got to win in order to collect, but, you know, if you win, it's pretty much, hey, let's, let's uh, again, let's back up the Brinks truck. Like I say, the attorneys apparently said that they're, they'd already amassed $1.7 million in legal fees, so they're doing the school district a favor to settle for $800,000. You know, we do have caps on legal fees in other sorts of areas. This might be a situation where maybe in cases like this, and I'm not saying attorneys don't deserve to get paid. Don't get me wrong. Attorneys deserve to get paid, and you need to at least have some skin in the game to incentivize attorneys to take cases. But $650,000 to the lawyers, $150,000 to the plaintiff, huh? something strikes me as being out of whack. Just saying. And who knows, again, what's going to happen with this, because Kenosha hasn't changed its policy. So the next transgender student that comes along, you know, could be right back in the same boat and they could be right back in court. Just saying. All right. Let us completely and totally switch gears. And like I said at the start of the program, there's lots of stuff I want to talk about kind of all over the map, ranging from national politics to local stories to local politics to statewide politics. Um, Yesterday. There was a story about a, a drugstore closing. Now, you could say to me, Jeff, why do you care about drugstores closing? It happens all the time. Well, this is a particular drugstore, and it's, it's actually really right down the street from where I'm, I'm sitting now. Um, it, it's the Hayek Pharmacy. I think that's how you, you pronounce it. Um, and it's, it's 4001 North Downer. It's on the corner of Downer and Capitol Avenue. It has been there for almost 100 years and the story that came out um the story that came out is that it's it's going to matter of fact i think it it closed yesterday closed for good on january 9th so closed what ended up happening is the the manager of the store apparently there were the the two pharmacists who worked at the store um decided that they were going to retire um one was 85 um and um well what the okay the the pharmacist who retired 74 years old um the owner also wanted to retire he was 85 and so they just made the decision that now was the time to, to close this down but the the story that it talks about the closing of this store which has been an institution in Shorewood for well 
you know, going on a hundred years, talks about how uh, again there, there used to be all these independently owned pharmacies, and now it seems like every time you turn around, they're building a CVS or they're building a Walgreens. Um, you've got the WalMarts of the world that have the pharmacies in them. You've got the Costco's of the world that have the pharmacies in them, and how th- these local operators just aren't able to compete. At one point in time, not that long ago, there were apparently five independently owned pharmacies in Shorewood. Now now they're down to one. Um, you know, and the same thing is being played out in, in other communities as well. I I get my prescriptions filled at, at a local independently owned pharmacy. You go into the store, it doesn't have all the stuff on the shelves that the CVS store has or the Walgreens store has, but, you know, it, it's it's a local independent business, and I enjoy supporting it. My sense is I probably pay a little more for stuff, but I'm not positive. I, I'm not positive, and that might not always be the case. But the, these local pharmacies are closing in part because they simply can't compete. Why can't they compete? Well, it might be because we, being the customers, are making the decisions that, you know, we're, it's just more convenient. It's easier to go to the Walgreens. It's easier to go to the CVSs. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Can a local pharmacy survive in 2018? This was a business that was there for almost a hundred years. And again, people got old. Uh, got older, people started retiring. I think they looked out and found that it just wasn't a viable business model to try to sell to somebody else. There wasn't somebody that wanted to buy this independent pharmacy and try to run it like that. So, you know, people retire, um, people age, the thing closes. Is this the future? Five years from now, 10 years from now, will there be local pharmacies? Will they figure out a way to survive? And should they survive? I mean, I guess, you know, does it matter? Does it matter that you go to a local pharmacy and independently own one as opposed to going to CVS or Walgreens or Costco or Walmart or wherever? Should we care about that? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Vote Bucks. NBA's all-star voting is underway, and Giannis leads LeBron in the race for the top Eastern Conference vote-getter. How cool is that? Help him pad his lead and vote for your other favorite Bucks through a link available now in the Features tab of WTMJ's mobile app. By the way, that's the same place that you can go to download all the podcasts from our shows, and I know a lot of people do that with this program, and I appreciate it very much. Okay, I... I I always have a, a soft spot for some of these local pharmacies. One of my 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 um, my grandfather, my father's father, um, passed away when I was ten years old. But I, I have this very fond recollection. He used to he used to take me out. He'd go out and get a cup of coffee. He'd take me and buy me like an ice cream soda, and we'd sit at at the soda fountain at at an area drugstore and he'd sit there and he'd have his cup of coffee and I'd have the soda I just have these incredibly fond memories of that and and that 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 was the the old style you know pharmacy where you had that you had the soda fountain all those type of things those those places are going the way of of the dinosaur and there was the there was a pharmacy in Shorewood that almost was there a hundred years ended up closing yesterday and you know what we're discussing is whether or not there is any future for businesses like that four one four seven nine Nine one six twenty. I hate to say this. I, I really do. 
Um, and and you're, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who, you know, at least for the last you know X number of years, has gone out of his way to patronize a locally independently owned pharmacy. But you wonder how how nowadays they can make it competing against the Walgreens and the CVSs and the WalMarts and the Costcos of the world. Lynn in Milton. Lynn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, this is close to my heart as well. My father was a pharmacist for 50 years. My grandfather was a pharmacist for 50 years. Uh, with that said, uh, in the 1980s, my father lost just about everything with uh, all of a sudden Walgreens was in mm-hmm. the picture. <laughs> yeah. And he just could not compete. They can buy volume. You know, and get right. pricing that's just off the charts for an independent person. And my father used to make salves and ointments for people that had leg ulcers. Right. I can remember going in and helping. He used to compound his medicine, some of the medicines that, you know, were out there. It's just a whole different animal now. And and right. my dad would go the extra mile. Someone would call at... 11 o'clock at night, my father would go to Green Bay Avenue in downtown Milwaukee. We lived in Menominee Falls and go and and get things so that, you know, John Smith didn't have to go a night without his medicine. Yeah, it's that it's that kind of service that people used to hear about. That's kind of going going the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, it's just it's incredibly sad. And they took so much pride in what they did. And they were so good to the customers. You go to Walgreens or especially Walmart. Oh my goodness, the experience there is just horrible. All oh, right, think. well, especially compared. No, I mean, thanks for calling in. And look, and I, it, I mean, here, here's the deal. This is not a new story. You know, when McDonald's started coming up all over the country. All right, that that. That you had a lot of, for example, mom and pop diners that just kind of disappeared. Some have have been able to survive and thrive, but it changed the landscape. Um, I was talking the other day about hardware stores. All right, I I support local hardware stores because I I like the play, but but they do the service. I like the fact that I I can go into a place and especially somebody who is repair challenged like I am and say. Help me, and there'll be somebody there that'll take me to aisle seven and show me exactly what I need, tell me what I need to do with it. And and you don't get that in a lot of the big box stores. So it is that service. Pharmacies, though, well, I, you know, it's, you know, filling a prescription is the same at different sort of places. And I, I don't know that the dynamic is any sort of different, is any different. And now, let's face it, you've got the insurance companies are playing in. Here's Jody who sends me a note, says, part of the problem are insurance companies. For example, my son has a recurring prescription, which we were getting filled at a particular place. Our insurance said we should get it filled through Express Scripts for about one-third of the cost. Um, if we would have continued with the place we were going, the insurance would have eventually paid less. Um, it, it's also a matter of economics, which is, I, I think, true, You know, and that's one of the issues that's there. 414-799-1620. And, um, it's just, I think, the reality, and I'm not I'm not crowing about this. This isn't something I think is necessarily positive, but the reality is I just don't know how these independent independent pharmacies are going to be able to, you know, make it make it go moving forward. Um, you know, and again, a lot of people are talking about, okay, uh Jeff, I'm a pharmacy manager for uh, a 
place in Wisconsin. I used to be a technician a long time ago for an independent pharmacy. I love the atmosphere. We had great customers. Unfortunately, with insurance companies, the reimbursement rates for the actual prescriptions kept dropping to the point where it didn't even cover the actual cost to fill a prescription anymore, and the front end with gifts and cards had to cover the loss. So the large chains have the ability to buy in larger bulk, get their drugs slightly cheaper, have more insurance plans cover those uh, dwindling payments. Love the show. Thanks. I mean, and I understand that that's the economics that are out there. You, you wonder how these places can continue to survive. And the answer is, I'm afraid that, that they're not. Because, again, you, you can add that personal touch and you can add that personal service. But the economics of it, it, it seems to me that, and again, I'm, I'm not happy about this. I think you're going to see um, the, the, these small businesses just get swallowed up more and more. Tom on the south side. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, Jeff. My uh, my uh, mom's uh, parents had a, a, a grocery store, uh, not a pharmacy, but a grocery store. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, we'll come to that because they would give them um, what you call credit and everything else. And, you know, like sure. you said, with all this other stuff. But the thing is that... the Small businesses, uh, small businesses, whether it's grocery stores, pharmacies, or anything else, built for this country, and they're all disappearing. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to pay what the market uh, has, like the WalMarts and everybody mm-hmm. else. And that's kind of sad, isn't it? Oh, it, it, no! Thanks for calling. It's very sad. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's extremely sad. And I think, you know, you you will. There are always going to be some niches. For example, um, I love liquor stores. <laughs> I just I just do. And and there but but the truth is and, and I know a couple people who run some really, really good independent liquor stores and I go out of my way to patronize, you know, those businesses as well. But I mean, you, you want to talk about another business that's difficult because again you're competing with you know, and I don't mean to pick on pick and save. You're competing with the Costco's, the pick and saves, the Walmarts of the world that have this incredible bulk buying power. So they're able to offer staples like soda or whatever, you know, cheaper. So the, the thing that attracts you to the liquor stores is, gee, they've got really knowledgeable people and they've got, you know, so selections of stuff beyond just what you might find in the beer department at, you know, fill in the blank giant big box store. But it's still, it, it's, it's a challenge that's out there. And and it's that whole idea of customer service. But hardware stores, I think liquor stores, mom-and-pop diners, if they're good, I think they're going to all find ways to at least survive, even in a challenging business climate. But these, these local pharmacies, um, huh? Steve in Burlington. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Steve. Uh, I'm calling from uh – uh, I own an independent pharmacy, and one of the things that a lot of the public isn't aware of and a lot of people aren't aware of, it's really kind of what's built on the back end, because when they say something like a third left on that express script you were talking about, right. I, I just want to give you an example. Uh, a senior citizen picked up a medication from us for a long time, and had to pay her copay for Medicare Part D. And the Medicare sent us $9.83. She came in and apologized to us because she picked it up from one of these specialty houses like you're talking about, right. like an Express Scripts, and the government paid the other pharmacy for 90 days of the same thing, $1,465.51. <laughs> now, Medicare's going broke. I've got kids, there's future generations, the, the Medicare system's going broke, 
A better question is, why is this kind of stuff being allowed to happen where we pay $1,465 for something that we, the taxpayers, can pay for $9.83? And I can give you hundreds of examples of the same thing if you want to see them. But I know time is important to you because time is money in your business. But it's a case of it's a case of it's time to stop the smoke and mirrors because it's not a case of where it's really a third less. It's what they're paid out on the back end, and it's time people understand that. Steve, so you're, you're down in Burlington. Is that is that where your business yep. is? I, I well, yep. I, I know people from Paul Ryan. That's that's your congressman. I know people from Paul Ryan staff listen to the show. I hope somebody is listening to this because. That is a very good question. You know, for everybody who says you can't reform Medicare, you can't do any of this stuff, you're not, I mean, that is a very, very good question that you're asking. How, how can, you know, this system pay $1,000 versus $9 for the same 1400, thing? 1400 <laughs> And I argued with the federal government for two and a half years on that, not for myself, but for the American people. They bounced me around between different divisions of the federal government and finally told me it wasn't enough money for us to worry about. And it's the number one drug that's used as an oral tablet for people that are diabetic. It's the number one drug. You're talking about metformin? You're talking about metformin? Yep, I'm talking about metformin. Okay, got it. Metformin, $9.83 when filled at your local independent store. And I make money at $9.83 and $1,465.51 when you use what in theory you say the independent pharmacy can't compete with. The better question is, why are we letting somebody charge $1,465 with our tax dollars for something you can pay $9.81 for? And you can still make money on. And you can make money on. Jeff, yeah. I've been in business for I've been in business for thirty five years, and I have every intention of being in business for another thirty five years. It's time. Healthcare is fixable, and I could give you a thousand examples, and you don't have time for Goodness. it right now. But if you want to see it, I'll drive the WCMJ <laughs> radio, and I'll talk to one of your staffs. And I'll show you. Steve, thanks for the call. I, I, I got to let you go because I'm kind of up against the top of the hour. But I am intrigued, and I think that's a story that some investigative reporters would love, hopefully, to poke into. It's 158. This is Jeff Wagner. It's WTMJ. It's 209. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with the program. The um, I know a lot of people are wringing their hands over the fact that you know, you've got you know good people that are leaving the Packers organization. Elliot Wolf taking a job with the Cleveland Browns. Um, I, I guess here, here's how I look at these types of things. Some degree of change is inevitable. The reality is, once the Packers made the decision that Ted Thompson was no longer going to be the general manager, what you had was a dam that was breaking. And I've always believed that it is a credit to your organization. And it doesn't matter whether it's football or radio or law or whatever. It's a credit to your organization that the people who, you know, worked 
for your organization are in demand elsewhere. I mean, that that's just the reality. Nothing stays the same. And I, I think a lot of people are saying it's unfortunate that Elliot Wolf is leaving. And, and yeah, it is, because he's apparently a very talented guy. But you got to understand that. He, he's somebody who's in demand. Mark Murphy was saying at the press conference earlier this week that he's a guy who's going to be a general manager somewhere. And, and that opportunity, at least in the near future, doesn't present itself in Green Bay. So you, you go out and, and you develop. Um, I think it's a tribute to our organization that you're able to identify young talent, you know, cultivate that talent and promote them from within to the point where they either kind of max out on their opportunities in your organization um, or they get promoted. You know, one, one of those, those two things. And and my, my guess is that there's a lot of other young, talented people that are in the organization who are, you know, waiting for their opportunities. So I think the Packers are going to end up doing just fine. I know there's also been hand, some hand-wringing about this this organizational shift that they have and where everybody's going to be reporting the president. I don't have a problem with that. I think it makes a – given the dynamics that are involved, given that you have – a guy like Russ Ball, who's the finance guy, who's been entrenched for years and years, and given the fact that you have a very successful coach in Mike McCarthy, it's tough to bring in somebody who's essentially been in a sort of a subservient role to them and put him on top of, of those very successful people. This 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 structure, I think, is going to work just fine, and I, I think uh, the future is very, very bright for the Green Bay Packers. Okay. I could have, as a matter of fact, I don't know if I said this on the air or whether I said it to some friends over the last few weeks, I could have predicted this just as certain as night follows day. Over the last couple weeks, it was abnormally cold in most of the United States. We had this thing, if I never hear the word polar vortex again, it'll be too soon. But, you know, this happened a few years ago, and it happened, you know, the last couple weeks where all this this cold air around the Arctic Circle that normally is trapped up there, something goes on with the atmosphere, and it kind of breaks out, and it hits, you know, North America, and and we're really, really cold. And I, I just, I, I remember talking to somebody, and we were discussing this, and we were talking about, global warming and of course the argument they use the term global warming and then because we have all these different cold snaps well that that fell out of favor so now the whole idea is climate change and i was talking about this in a bar with somebody not that long ago and we the general conclusion was you knew you knew that the explanation that we would get for climate change what the, for the cold weather was it's climate change because that's the way this has happened if it's cold it's because of climate change. If it's hot, it's because of climate change. If it's dry, it's because of climate change. If it's wet, it's because of climate change. Climate change is now this convenient thing that we use to try to explain any temporary you know, aberration in, in the weather. Um, here's the New York Times, predictably. Why so cold? Climate change may be part of the answer. As bitter cold, this was written a couple days ago, as bitter cold continues to grip much of North America and helps spawn the fierce storms along the East Coast, the question arises, what's the influence of climate change? Some scientists studying the connection between climate change and cold spells, which occur when cold Arctic air dips south, say they may be related. The Arctic is not as cold as it used to be. However... 
However, the Arctic still does play a role. There is a direct connection between cold weather. Uh, whether there's a direct connection between cold weather and global warming is still up for debate, but there are many factors involved. So, in other words, if it's cold, it's climate change. If it's warm, it's climate change. If it rains, it's climate change. If it doesn't rain, it's climate change. I, I guess I, I want to just spend one segment of, of this hour discussing th- this whole issue. I am not a climate change denier in that there are more people in the world than ever which mean and at the same time you have more and more countries that are becoming industrialized so there's more pre- there's more people there's more pressure on natural resources there's more co2 gas or whatever that the fact that you have more people and you have more industrialization tells me that that's going to have some sort of impact on, on the globe. I, I just It makes sense to me under those circumstances. So I've never been a climate change denier in the sense that, yeah, do, more people, more industry, yeah, that makes sense to me that that changes the environment a bit. Where I, I think, depart from a lot of the car- climate change people is that I am not a climate change alarmist. I I understand that you're going to have shifting patterns. And and yes, the fact that you have more people and you have more of these greenhouse gases and this type of stuff might mean that, okay, we're we're going to have perhaps, I don't know, uh, milder winters, perhaps wetter winters, all those different types of things. I, I guess I accept that. But this idea that the climate change we are looking at is going to dramatically affect our lives, that's where I have the issue. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's also where I throw them up my hands and say, okay, tell me what you want to do. Does this mean that you want to, okay, say that we, we can't heat our homes anymore or we can't heat our homes, you know, beyond 62 degrees, you know, in the wintertime and we can't have air conditioners or things like that. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is climate change real? And and how do we deal with it? Because, again, I'm willing to accept the idea that, that human beings have an impact on climate and, you know, more industry and more nations becoming industrialized and more people. Okay, that, that makes sense. But at the same time, does this mean that it's something that, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we've got to go to whatever alarmist Al Gore movie is out at the moment and say we've got to make these sort of major changes? 414-799-1620, we discuss next. It's 217. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 219. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. And, again, I, I try to wrestle with this. I, I, you know, because, you know, if you say, well, the, the, the climate isn't changing. Well, I'm, I, I mean, I do think if you look at the numbers, you see a slight increase. The world is getting a little bit warmer. And it makes sense to me. More people, more industrialization. I, I think there probably is an effect. The question becomes, all right, is it something to be alarmed about? And I do admit it's kind of frustrating that the climate change folks want to have it, want to have it their own way. Anytime there is a change in the climate, it's warmer, it's colder, it's drier, it's wetter, there's more snow, there's less snow. We had three hurricanes this year. Well, okay, that's because of climate change. Well, we didn't have any hurricanes for 12 years. That's because of climate change. Doug in Grafton. Doug, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, you know what? You hit the nail right on the head. That's exactly the way I feel about it. Of course, there's climate change. 
it's been changing for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. When we and you know you look at history, we go through cycles uh, before our time, obviously. But there are times when they said, "Oh my God, it's uh, everything's going to freeze because we're going through this dramatic uh, cold weather. We're going to get glaciers again." Uh, climate does change yeah. very little over the years, very little. And do we have an impact on it? I think we do, but I think it's much smaller than all these alarmists would yeah. like us to believe. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And, and there will, I mean, again, you're like you talk about the glaciers. You're, you're exactly right. There, there has been, there will always be climate change. You know, more people it makes sense to me that it has some sort of impact. But, but this idea that, oh my goodness gracious, you know, we're not going to have people be allowed to live around the coasts, or you know, you're going to have the Arctic Circle, which is going to the ice is going to completely melt. That's not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen in Al Gore's lifetime, or Al Gore's kids' lifetime, or his grandkids, or his great grandkids' lifetime. Yeah, absolutely, I, I agree one hundred percent. Yeah, thank you again. It's just, and it's. I mean, I don't want to be labeled as, as a denier, but I, I keep hearing these stories, and and I, I keep throwing up my hands and saying, "Okay, well, explain to me." You know where we we go with this. Yes, I think it's one of these things that you have to understand. All right, if if you're considering, you know, buying a house in the Gulf of Mexico, all right, well, you have to recognize that. I don't know. You went twelve or thirteen years with no hurricanes. You know, this year it was a bad hurricane season. That's going to be the type of thing that that ends up happening. Maybe there's going to be more water here. Maybe there's going to be less water somewhere else. Maybe it's going to be hotter. Maybe it's going to be a little bit colder. You, you deal with it and you adapt. Dave in Fort Atkinson. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, Jeff. I, I've I've been a truck driver for forty years, and I've been out. I've done a um, uh, non scientific study of winter. Right. Because I'm out, I'm out in it all the time and across the country. And I can tell you in all honesty, winter still seems like winter I remember as a kid. Right. Uh, you know, Michigan, uh, yeah, we have ups and downs, but we've always had that. And I remember in living, being raised in Michigan, snow banks up to the power wires. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michigan is very great. You've got on the western shore of lower Michigan, they're buried. I was just over there last week. Uh, you know, we had a cold snap. This is normal. This is just normal winter. I think for people that are in an office or factory, they're not out in it as much as I am. But winter still seems like winter to me, Joe. Yeah, no, I, and summer probably seems like summer, too, I would imagine. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly. I was in Upper Michigan last year on a vacation, and it was almost 90 degrees on Lake Superior Shoreline. Well, sure, but then I've been up there in the winter where it's been 27 below. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, that, that's. I mean, it, 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 it's. Yes, that's that's the reality that, that's kind of out there, and we try to explain it with the climate change. Okay, if you want to say that, that that's fine. But you know, where where do you go? Does that mean you change your policies massively? I, I mean, I, I think in some respects, what you see here, and I have a couple people that are you know texting me and making that point that you know that this is really is this just an effort for the government to try to change our behaviors by added taxes and things like that? Uh, yes. I, I think there will be periodic effects, and, and yeah, maybe it means it's going to be a little bit warmer up here. And I, I will tell you, as somebody who doesn't necessarily like cold weather, if if the average temperature around here goes up, you know, a quarter of a degree or a half a degree over the course of the next five or ten years, that's okay. But it, it always is; things always seem to even out. You know, I fully expect. Now, maybe I'll be wrong. We have we've done well so far this year around here without snow. I am not predicting snow. I am not hoping for snow. 
you know, a winter without significant snowstorms would be just absolutely fine with me. But, you know, what I always notice, and I notice this every year, things kind of tend to even out. You've got historical averages, and generally speaking, if we have kind of a dry beginning of the winter, that means sometimes you're going to get hit a couple times at the end. It just starts to even out. We go through those periods of time where, okay, you've got – um, we're not getting as much rain, and then it seems like it rains every you know other day for the better part of you know a couple months, like it did what two years ago. You get all these different types of things. Let's talk to Lewis on the South Side. You're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I just don't think we have enough data uh, to determine whether we're causing any uh, effect on your uh, weather or not, and. We don't have enough data to determine what would be the correct uh, way to proceed right. uh, you know, on fixing that. Plus, kind of odd thing that I just found out, the United States has done over a 1,000 nuclear tests and the rest of the world another 1,000, and I don't see the world falling apart. Yeah, you again, right, right. It's like, I guess, and the only thing I say, I'm not a scientist and I don't play one on the radio. It just, it does make sense to me. That if you've got more people in the world than ever, and more countries that are becoming industrialized, that that that's that does that has to have some impact. But I guess the question becomes: All right, what 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 is the nature and what is the extent of that impact? And you know, movies like you know, The Day After. Or, I mean, again, you you listen to Al Gore, and, and Al Gore is the guy. At any time there is a weather phenomena, whether or not it fits into the template or not, it's always it's always climate change. First it was global warming, but now it gets cold, so then you can't say global warming because you seem stupid, so then it becomes like climate change. My point is just I, I think everybody needs to kind of take a deep breath on this and and just but at the same time call out people when they try to explain every weather aberration phenomena or occurrence as being climate change. For example, I was looking at the ten day forecast. It's warm today. It's warm tomorrow. We call this the January thaw. Then what's going to happen is it's going to get cold, not as crazy cold as it was two weeks ago, but it's going to get cold for a few days. And then by the end of next week, it's supposed to warm up again back into the 30s. Okay, is that climate change or is it just Wisconsin winter? It's 227. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So I looked up a little while ago. And who should I see wandering around the building but the aging hippie mayor of Madison, Paul Soglin, who's got to be old. Uh, but Soglin had his, I mean, Soglin's heyday, of course, was, you know, back in the, the 1960s and the campus protests and stuff like that. And, and, and he announced in the last day or so that he is going to be running for governor. There are... There are, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, I lose count, you know, people who say that they're either running for governor or considering running for for governor uh, against Scott Walker. And I I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, this just shows that that Walker is vulnerable. Uh, you got all these people who are running against him. To which I said, you're nuts. Scott Walker is in the strongest position to be reelected than he has ever been in in other races. And, and the person said, well, well, then why are all these people running? And I said, well, it's, it, there's a couple things that are going on. If you look at the people that are running for the Democratic, the Democrats have no bench. There is no leadership structure 
in Wisconsin with Democrats. I mean, name who is the who is the titular head uh, of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin? I mean, you know, Herb Cole, no, Herb Cole's gone. Russ Feingold, no, Feingold's lost the last couple races. You know, Jim Doyle, no, no, Doyle's you know off you know practicing law. There, there's nothing. Tammy Baldwin, no, Tammy Baldwin is such a divisive figure. It's not like she's the one that everybody in the Democratic Party are rallying around and taking their marching orders for. Gwen Moore, well, no, Gwen Moore is well, Gwen Moore is. Gwen more you know there, there's there's no leadership structure because the democrats have been out of power so long it, it's why you, you have a tom barrett now i mean barrett had his chance and took a couple chances and you know barrett's he's yesterday's news you know he'll be mayor in milwaukee for one term or one more term or you know if he wants to run again okay that that's fine but but there's no leadership structure whereas the republicans i mean you've got a, a whole list of, of high-powered, experienced candidates and potential candidates that, that are, are out there. Um, if Scott Walker wasn't going to run for re-election, you have people in the Senate, you have people in the Assembly, you've got the lieutenant governor, um, you've got this sort of power structure that's there. So somebody was saying, okay, well, why, why are these Democrats running if you think it's a suicide mission electorally? I said, well, because it's a couple things. If you look at the candidates that are out there, it's either – it's either aspiring politicians who are trying to position themselves as a Democrat Party leader for the future. Young people are saying, OK, if I get the Democratic nomination, maybe I lose to Scott Walker. But Walker said that he's not going to run again. Now, who knows? He might change his mind. But Walker said he's not going to run again. I I will be in position to run for something bigger next time if I run a credible campaign. So you've got some younger politicians who want to do that. And let's face it, you've got some older politicians, some of the yesterday's news type of guys, who you know have political aspirations and recognize that the clock is ticking. And, you know, once you get to a, a certain age, you know, you know, you start pushing 75 or 80, that, that's not exactly... I don't know that that's not exactly, you know, going to be inspiring to a lot of voters at the risk of being labeled ageist. But but still, that's not the next generation. So they're figuring, OK, this this is the opportunity. So, I mean, look at look at this list of candidates there. Like I say, Paul Soglin, who's the aging hippie mayor of, of Madison. All right. Is, is the mayor of Madison? And I'm not saying that Soglin can't get the nomination. If you've got 10, 15 people that are running Theoretically, you get somebody that can get 15 to 20 percent of the vote, they will probably get the nomination. So I'm not saying any of these people can't necessarily get the nomination. I'm saying that none of these people have a chance of beating Scott Walker. Okay, so, I mean, a Madison lefty, uber-liberal mayor of Madison, oh, good, that's a great recipe for disaster. Um, Tony Evers liberal state school superintendent, he would be one of the people that I would put into the category of, of again, now or never. Um, former state Democratic Party chairman Matt Flynn, um, you know, Matt, d- decent guy, but um, again, the clock is kind of ticking. He's lost races for pretty much everything, so why not the governor's race? Um, Milwaukee area businessman Andy Gronick, who is very, very controversial. Former Wisconsin Democ- Democracy Campaign Executive Director. This is the good government lefty Mike McCabe. Um, yeah. Let's see, the professional firefighters of Wisconsin president. Didn't he run for something? Former state representative Kelda Royce of Madison. Good, another Madison lefty. Kathleen Weinhout of Alma. 
Dana Walks of Eau Claire. Um, some of them have endorsements from people like Herb Cole or Dave Obie. Does anybody even remember, you know, Dave Obie? Uh, the, the bottom line is it's not particularly an inspiring list of candidates that, that's out there. Moreover, um, Walker, I don't think, is anywhere near as controversial as he was. We're past the Act 10 moment. I mean, right now, we're at a point where the state is is actually seeing the benefits uh, of Act 10 to the point that this last budget, really, okay, more money is going back into the public school system. Um, you're now starting to see money that's being spent on that to the extent that the juvenile prison was an issue. Well, now Walker's saying, okay, let's close Lincoln Hills. Let's open more of these. Um, the economy doing I think pretty darn well. Foxconn is out there, and some people are saying, let's run against Foxconn. In my opinion, that is a complete and total recipe for disaster now. Maybe if Foxconn doesn't work, maybe five years from now, okay, it could be a campaign issue. But right now, no. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't see anybody in this list of candidates who has any chance at all of beating Governor Walker. I I mean, I I just don't. You are going to have the anti-we-hate-Walker folks that that are out there, and and that's that's going to be about 45% of the vote. But given where Wisconsin is now in the state of the economy, given what's going on with Foxconn, given everything and i understand that there's people in the mainstream media that are just appalled to hear this i mean tell me which of these candidates has a chance of beating governor walker i don't see it 414-799-1620 that is the accident mortgage talk and text line all right anybody on the horizon that has a chance of beating scott walker like i say this list of candidates i'm seeing looks to me like it's the 45 percent solution meaning that that's that's kind of where they are, 45% of the vote, which isn't going to be enough to win. 414-799-1620. It's 242. We discuss next. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the announcement today and, and actually the, the interview he did with uh, Melissa as Paul Soglin, who, again, the hippy-dippy mayor of Madison, he, he's, he's now thrown his hat in the ring and that he's 72 years old or, or whatever. And it's, it is interesting to me. If you look at the breakdown of the people who want to be governor, and there's, there's no shortage. You, you've got like every Democrat, um, including many Democrats who don't have jobs, who are, you know, looking for that, that political rise. They're, they're out there and they're announced they're running. And again, I, I think it's, I think it's two things. And I said this a minute ago. I, I think it's either, People who realize that they can't beat Scott Walker, but they want to position themselves as leaders of the party for two years down the road or four years down the road. So they're using this as kind of the opportunity. And and, and even if they end up being cannon fodder for this race, they'll be able to position themselves for next time. Or it's it's guys that have been around the block and around the block and around the block and around the block and around the block who are saying, okay, well, I'm in my 70s or whatever. I got to take one more chance before it's time to head off to the back nine. So here, I'll this this is my opportunity. I'll I'll run, um, which isn't exactly kind of the, the new face thing that you would you would expect, but you never know. So you've got about 15 of these folks that are kind of out there. Nine, I think, have paid staff. 
Um, I, I don't, with one or two exceptions, most aren't independently wealthy, so you're not going to have this self-finance thing, again, with one or two exceptions. And, and the big issue is going to be, is the Democratic Party going to coalesce? You know, how, how are you going to raise money to run a race like this? You know, how does this all play out? But the, the truth of the matter is... I think, and and maybe I'll be eating my words on this, you know, 10 months from now, but I, I really think Scott Walker is better positioned now to go into a reelection campaign than he has been at any time over the, the last eight years. The fervor, the, you know, the furor over Act 10 has pretty much subsided. All the people who predicted that the world was going to end, well, they've they've been pretty much debunked as being, you know, alarmists. State in a very, very, I think, solid f- position. Um, some people suggesting you run against Walker on Foxconn. Again, except among like the hardcore Walker haters, I think that that is a losing issue. And I mean, I don't know. Do you really want to be running a campaign, you know, betting against the success of the state? That's a tough way to go. Now, it might be it might be that I will be wrong. It might be that Governor Walker will be wrong. It might be that, you know, five years from now, Foxconn turns out to be a complete and total debacle and they've pulled out and, you know, we've lost money. Okay, that's possible. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's likely to happen. But Nobody, I think, is going to go into this race assuming that that is going to fail unless you're a hardcore Walker hater. And the truth is there is not enough hardcore Walker haters out there to win an election. So it, it will be interesting to see how all this plays out and how the candidates try to distinguish themselves. But Scott Walker, I, I think, is in really, really good shape so far. I know some of the things that Democrats are also hoping for is that, gee, there's going to be all this disaffection with President Trump, and that's going to carry over and hurt Republicans. I don't know what the national mood is going to be like, but I think in Wisconsin, you're going to have the, the you're not going to see that play out. And whoever it is that emerges as the candidate to challenge Tammy Baldwin, whether it's Leah Vukmir, whether it's Kevin Nicholson, and that's starting to shape up as a pretty darn interesting race, or whether it's somebody else who hasn't entered the race yet, I, I think you're going to see an energized Republican Party um can they beat Tammy Baldwin? I don't know. Jury's still out on that. But I, I think you're going to see an energized party there. And, you know, as far as Scott Walker, I think people would run through brick walls to vote for him again. The national scene is different. But in my opinion, the national scene for Republicans just got infinitely better over the course of the last couple of days. There is, of course, this book that's come out that's gotten all this attention over the last week or so, you know, the Fire and Fury book by Michael Wolff that quotes all sorts of people in the Trump administration uh, portraying a, an unflattering portrait of, of President Trump. And nobody quoted more prominently than Steve Bannon. All right. As a result of this, you know, Bannon essentially has been exiled. Um, some of his big financial supporters that really put the money into the, the super PACs that Bannon had, they've pulled the plug on him. And yesterday, Bannon stepped down from his position as, as the publisher of, of Bright, executive chairman, but he's like the publisher of, of Breitbart News. And of course, his connection with Breitbart allowed him to set the agenda, cer- certainly in the conservative media, because he could pick the stories that we want to run, and this is what we're going to focus on. He set himself up as a kingmaker, and now 
He's lost a lot of his financial supporters. He's lost the support of the super PACs that he had, and he's out at Breitbart. He is essentially wandering into the wilderness. And you know what? If you care about Republican politics, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Steve Bannon was the worst thing that could have and did happen to the Republican Party. I understand that there's a lot of people who support President Trump, who voted for President Trump because they wanted to shake up the establishment. I get all that. But it's one thing to say, hey, we want to shake up establishment Republicans. It's another thing to say... We want to find crazy people who aren't electable, and we want to go down and prop them up. I mean, it's one thing to be a bomb thrower, but the truth of the matter is, sooner or later, that that act wears thin. I knew and have predicted on multiple occasions that Steve Bannon was going to self-destruct. It wasn't a question of if. It was a question of of when. And you, you saw this. I mean, Steve Bannon is the reason the Republicans lost that Senate seat in Alabama. He goes down to Alabama. He finds this crazy Roy Moore. And, you know, that you run this insurgent campaign against a sitting senator who was a very conservative senator. You pick the one guy in Alabama who can't win as a Republican, the one Republican who can't win in Alabama, and and you end up with, with him because he's got more baggage than you know a troop train you know moving east and he's just kind of nuts and so you know this was the steve bannon he wanted to go around he wanted to try to identify these insurgent candidates many of whom were just flat out unelectable so bannon because of his own mouth essentially he he's he's on the outside now lost his position at breitbart He's lost his influence and some of his financial backers. And the bottom line of all this is, I I hope that this promotes moral normalcy. You know, six years ago, the Republicans went through this. When they nominated candidates in the primary that could not win in the general election, they turned their back on mainstream conservatives. And as a result, they ended up kind of getting whomped. That was back in 2012. All right. Hopefully, we've learned from this, and hopefully, uh, again, the demise of Steve Bannon, um, a guy who essentially did it to himself, the demise of Steve Bannon will open the door for you know more mainstream conservatives to move forward to get elected. You know, and that's the bottom line. Republicans got to nominate electable candidates. As I look up and down the Republican roster in Wisconsin, you've got mainstream conservatives. Now, obviously, people disagree on different types of issues and things like that, but you, you don't have the lunatic fringe, which is a good thing. And the fact that Steve Bannon is now history, at least for the time being, that's good as well. All right, it's 2.54 when we come back. We'll find out what John McCure and Melissa Barkley have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.